0: father we thank you for today it is a gift to be here gathered with your people thank you for your word for us to hear from, read from be changed by pray that you would cause our hearts to see you and to worship you would you help Scott as he preaches help him to preach your word to be loving you and worshiping you loving us your people and we pray that you would be magnified and hallowed be your name, Father. Amen. So we're going to read from Luke 22. It's in the New Testament. There's the Old Testament first and then the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. Luke 22, 31 through 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said to him, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough.
1: (laughs) Well, good morning, church. And... Good morning, kids who aren't usually here. It's so good to have you with us. And I hope this morning, whether you are a kid or an adult, wherever you're coming from, that you feel like this is a safe place to be spiritually weak. It's hard to feel this sometimes, that this gathering, of God's people, week by week, is meant to be a home for the spiritually vulnerable. Those who feel it really keenly, that their faith in Jesus feels shaky. Or they're walking in here with some kind of struggle that they feel like the only one in. I can remember uh, some years ago, going through a period of like a two-year Spiritual darkness of sorts, and how hard it could be to walk in on Sunday morning and to see people singing to Jesus and thinking, I know this isn't true, but feeling in that moment as if I were the only one struggling with the kinds of things I was struggling with. And if that's you, I want you to know that you are welcome here and that you are not alone. And I know that not only because there are people here that I know of who feel weak (laughs) this morning, but also because in one real sense, every single one of us is spiritually vulnerable this morning, whether we feel it or not. The world is not a safe place for faith in Jesus, no matter where you live. Our lives in America as Christians may not be in significant danger, but our faith is. Here and wherever, it's not a safe place, this world, for faith in Jesus, for all-out devotion to Jesus through all the light and dark of life. There are thorns in this world that can slowly choke your faith. There are distractions in this world that can dull you and draw you away. There is a devil in this world, we're going to see in our passage, who can undo you. There are temptations that can trip you by surprise. And for many of us, most of us, there are going to be dark nights in this world coming, if not now, that push our faith to the breaking. And the question that I want us to consider this morning is, in light of all those dangers and in light of our vulnerability, what is our confidence that we're going to make it to the end still devoted to Jesus? Our passage is going to help us answer that question this morning. We're in the Gospel of Luke still, nearing the end, and in fact, this passage, verses 31 to 38, is the last time we're going to see Jesus with his 12 disciples before he goes to the cross. From here, it's Gethsemane, it's the arrest, and it's the cross. And the mood is somber in this moment. They're eating the Passover meal. Jesus has just told his 12 men that one of them is about to betray him. So darkness is gathering. And it's just going to keep getting darker and darker in the Gospel of Luke until we get to Sunday morning. But as always, as we're going to see in this passage and as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, the darkness only makes the glory of Jesus shine brighter Our passage, we're going to look at it in two basically even scenes, verses 31 to 34 and then verses 35 to 38. And what we're going to see is that uh, there are three common elements in both of these scenes, danger and dullness and deliverance. Jesus is going to warn his disciples of danger that's coming. The disciples are going to show themselves ultimately dull to his warnings, and still Jesus is going to deliver them anyway. And the main point that I want us to walk away with this morning is that Jesus will deliver you from every danger as you keep hoping in him. Jesus will deliver you from every danger as you keep hoping in him, no matter how vulnerable you feel. So verse 31, let's take a look, see what the first danger is. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and all of a sudden, he looks straight at Peter, and he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Imagine the sobriety in the room at these words. Imagine if you were Peter. You're sitting in a group of people, having a meal. Jesus looks right at you and says, Satan wants you. There are some mysteries here that we're not privy to all the details about, like what's going on? How does Satan have access to God to demand to have Peter? How can he do that? We do know from the book of Job, for example, that this kind of thing can happen, but the details are beyond us. What we do know, what we can say, is that this world is both physical and spiritual. And very often, there's more going on in the temptations that we deal with than meets the eye. And Jesus wants Peter to know that. He wants Peter in this moment to feel the weight of the fact that he is about to be sifted, shaken by Satan himself. And not only Peter... If you uh, have a footnote, you might have a footnote in your Bible on that word, you, that says it's not singular, but plural. So Jesus is talking about all the disciples as he looks at Peter. Satan demanded to have you all, you 12. He's already taken Judas, and now he's saying he wants the rest. But he's looking at Peter Because Peter, in particular, is a leader of the 12. And he's in a particularly vulnerable position, therefore. Because Satan loves to take down leaders. He does so much damage that way. And so Peter's in a particularly dangerous spot. Jesus tells him that Satan wants to sift him like wheat. What does that mean? He wants to... Press Peter and the disciples, to shake them and have all of the faith that is in them sifted out. He wants to pick them to pieces so that they just are fishermen again, so that they're just a tax collector again, so that they go back to doing all the things that they did before they knew Jesus. And you can see that even in the way that Jesus talks to Peter. He says, Simon Simon. That was Peter's old name. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus hasn't called Peter Simon since before he was a disciple. So he's subtly suggesting here, Peter, in what's about to come, your very discipleship, your very faith is going to be on the line. Satan wants to crush you and leave only Simon remaining and not Peter anymore. And that's what he wants with us, too. We're not apostles. We're not Peter. But the devil hates faith wherever he finds it. And so with us, too, there is very often more going on in our temptations than what meets the eye. I'm not saying that Satan is the only thing happening behind our temptations. We have sinful flesh. We have broken bodies. We live in a fallen world. But Satan is one thing behind the temptations that we face. And his aim, even if the temptation looks relatively small, is to take your testimony and tell it in reverse. He wants to deconvert you. That is the, if you trace this thing all the way down to the end, follow this road of temptation and compromise, compromise, compromise. The end, in Satan's mind, is a you without Jesus. Peter should have trembled, (laughs) but he didn't. And so here we see his dullness. Look with me now. We're going to skip over verse 32 just for a moment and look at verses 33 and 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Peter, he finds Jesus' warning hard to believe he doesn't feel spiritually spiritually vulnerable. And it kind of makes sense if you're reading the gospel of Luke because up until this point the devil hasn't really been a threat to Peter. If you remember back, chapters 9 and 10, Jesus sends the disciples out, when they return in chapter 10, they say, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name." The disciples have authority over Satan. Up to this point, he hasn't been a threat. So what's the danger? But there's something that can happen, <laughs> if you're at all like me, where after a period of time, if you've walked in a pattern of regular triumph in some area of life, you're just walking in victory over victory in some sin, you feel invulnerable, that you can start to feel like it's, it's it was you. You can grow less desperate. You can become more comfortable skirting the edge rather than safely staying a distance away. And the words of Peter here, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, even to prison and to death, suggests that he had something like that in mind. He was thinking along those lines. Listen to what one theologian says about Peter and the disciples that I find helpful here. Until now, Jesus had been with them. He had kept them and guarded them himself. And if they were anything like us, which they were, they probably hardly ever noticed his protection. True, they had needed it during the storm on the Sea of Galilee and perhaps on a few other occasions, but Simon Peter had sometimes reversed the roles in his imagination and had seen himself as Jesus' protector. How little he knew about his frailty. He was the one who needed to be guarded and protected. Peter forgot how dependent that he was on Jesus. He had grown self-confident. And he was about to discover, as we'll see in weeks ahead, that self-confidence is no match for Satan. In the following hours, Peter is not only going to not go to prison and to trial with Jesus, but he's going to deny even knowing him three times. And Jesus, in this moment, looks at Peter, and knows it. So the danger is Satan coming for Peter. The, the, the dullness is Peter's self-confidence. And now for the deliverance. Look now, verse 32 with me. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We could talk about this verse for hours, I think. It is so good. But we have a few minutes. And so what we're going to talk about is that what Peter needed to know is that Jesus was not only going to be a savior who died for him, not only going to be a Savior who would rise and eventually come back for him, but a very present Savior who was going to pray for him and deliver him from every danger, even the ones he was unaware of. We often talk about Jesus as past Savior who died for us, Jesus as future Savior who's coming back for us. Jesus is also a present Savior right now who prays for us. Every moment, day by day, month by month, year by year, that's what explains your perseverance in faith from first moment to last breath. Jesus is praying for you, and Peter needed to know it in this very moment. Notice that Jesus does not tell Peter that he is praying for him to be spared satanic assault or praying for him to be spared the darkest night of his life. It's not what he prays for. He prays that even in the midst of all that darkness and attack, Peter's faith wouldn't fail. And you might think, knowing the story, but didn't it? <laughs> didn't his faith fail? He denied Jesus three times. I imagine that Peter, at least in the moments afterward, would have felt like his faith had failed. But no, his faith did not fail, not totally. <laughs> And we know that because of what Peter does after he fails. Amazingly, even though the Gospels say that he goes out and he weeps bitterly, he doesn't despair. He doesn't become a Judas. And in the days ahead, we're going to see Peter gathered again with the disciples. Can you imagine the shame, the embarrassment? He he goes back with them. And on Sunday morning, we're going to see Peter sprint to the tomb, and that is not a picture of failed faith, which means, church, that your faith can fail in many ways without it failing totally. You can fail in many ways without your faith failing in the way that Jesus is talking about here, and the the test for it is what do you do after you failed? Do you hope against hope? that there is still forgiveness for you? Do you turn again and look back to Jesus, even if it feels like you can only turn rather than run yet? Do you pray and do you gather again with God's people? And when there is in Jesus, in his time, comes to you with grace through his gospel, do you take it and believe that he still loves you? If so, then your faith hasn't failed. You, like Peter, have been upheld. And the glorious thing that Jesus wants Peter to know, he would would want Peter to remember this for the rest of his life. And he wants us to know this too. The reason that Peter's faith didn't fail, even in the darkest night, and the reason that yours won't, if you belong to Jesus, is because he prays for you. He, Jesus, upholds you and holds on to you. And he is the one who keeps you stepping and stepping and stepping even when you feel like stopping. Notice that Jesus did not say to Peter, "If you turn, Peter, if you turn, then then do this or that." He says, "Peter, when you turn, you're going to turn because I've prayed for you." Peter's faith didn't depend on his own power, and neither does ours. Ultimately, Peter's faith and ours depended on Jesus' praying, which means it's safe from every danger, no matter how weak you feel. And if that weren't enough, notice also that <laughs> Jesus promises not only to deliver Peter from this danger, but also to restore him to his place among the twelve. Peter, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. strengthen your brothers. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to deliver Peter. He was going to bring him back. And Peter would strengthen others better because of what he had been through. Have you felt that? Have you felt that failure can fit you for more effective ministry? That's what we see with Peter. If you read through the book of Acts, if you read through his letters, First and Second Peter, you don't catch any whiff of self-confidence that we see in this passage here, because Peter had felt the weakness of Peter, and he had felt the strength of Satan, and most importantly, he had felt the power of the redemption of Jesus that is greater than Satan and Peter. And so because he had known those things, he was in a perfect position to point other sinners like us to the strength of God, which is what we need most of all. Okay, scene change, kind of dramatically. Jesus is done talking to Peter directly, and now he's going to turn and address all the 12. And what he says is surprising. Look with me at verses 35 to 36, where we see another warning of coming danger. And Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. We're going to address what Jesus means by a sword here in just a minute. But before we do, let's just try to get a sense of what, what's the danger that he's warning the disciples of here. You might remember that, uh, as we've talked about earlier, the disciples went out on missionary journeys twice in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus alludes to that here. And when they went, Jesus had them travel lightly. No knapsack, no money bag, no sandals even. And he did that because the disciples were supposed to rely on the hospitality and friendship of their Jewish neighbors. They're traveling apostles. They're traveling messengers. And a lot of people were in favor of Jesus at this time. And so they were sure of a friendly welcome, at least somewhere. They didn't need to bring uh, provisions for themselves because their Jewish neighbors would see, oh, they're, they're followers of Jesus. They're bringing the gospel of Jesus. And they would give them shelter and food and that sort of thing. But now, Jesus says, verse 36, something is different. But now. The disciples are going to go out on their mission again. Jesus is going to send them, just like he did earlier. But they're not going to find the same friendly response. Instead of the kind of hospitality that they received from so many of their neighbors, the public tide of opinion is going to turn in many places against Jesus And so instead of hospitality, they're going to receive hostility, which you can see all throughout the book of Acts, beaten, slandered, mocked, some of them even imprisoned and killed. And the main reason that the world is going to turn against the disciples in this way is because the world is about to turn on Jesus. Verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. In just a few hours, Jesus, the Jesus whom the disciples had seen hailed as teacher and son of God and even as Messiah, he's going to be treated like a criminal. He's going to be condemned and publicly crucified between two robbers. He's going to be numbered with the transgressors. As Jesus says here. And that means that the disciples are in danger of being numbered with the transgressors along with him. If they treat the master of the house like this, then surely they're going to treat those of his household that way. And so Jesus tells them to take provisions for themselves. Don't rely on other people the way that you did before. Take a money bag, take a knapsack, and take a sword. And this is where we see the disciples' dullness. Verse 38, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. What's going on here? The disciples' response, what they say, might not seem dull. (laughs) On face value, it looks like Jesus says, get a sword. They say, got a sword. He says, good. But there are really good reasons to take Jesus' words here about swords as figurative rather than literal. Therefore, when he says it is enough, it's more like he's dismissing the conversation because they didn't understand his meaning. Not everybody takes it that way. Some people think that Jesus meant what he said about swords literally here. There was actually a president of um, one of the biggest Christian universities a few years ago, you may remember this, and he pointed to this passage as justification for telling his students to arm themselves on campus in case terrorists came or something like that. And then there are, apart from that kind of thing, there are some serious interpreters who think for some reason Jesus is urging them to take measures for self-defense here. But there are two really good reasons that lean the other way. And say, Jesus was talking metaphorically here. One of them is that in just a few verses, we're going to see Peter take one of these swords and hack off somebody's ear. And Jesus, in response to that, says, no more. And heals the man's ear. (laughs) And then probably even bigger than that, through the rest of the New Testament, Acts and the letters, you don't get any sense that the disciples have a sword on their hip. They never, in their letters, are encouraging people in the face of persecution to respond violently. And we never see them do that themselves. Instead, what they model and what they say is patient endurance in the face of persecution rather than violent response to it. And I know that that opens up a can of worms for some people, just about like Christians and self-defense, and what do you do if people break in, and you're guarding others, and that kind of thing. And We can have a good conversation, a long conversation, about that, which we're not going to right now. Maybe uh, Ross and Sam and Daniel can do a podcast on it sometime. People in this room and thoughtful Christians everywhere are going to land on different sides of that debate, but what's important here is that the disciples missed Jesus. He was telling them to be ready, to be on guard, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, to know that people were about to oppose them, and to not be surprised by that because they're about to oppose him. And the disciples, in response to that, say, well, here's two swords, and Jesus dismisses it and says, that's enough. Not the first time they've taken his words too literally. So if that was the danger, that the world is going to turn on them, and if the dullness was them actually getting a couple physical swords, look with me now at verse 37 for the deliverance. We've read this before. Here's what Jesus says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Here's the deliverance. While the disciples were arming themselves for battle, Jesus was readying himself for the cross. While the disciples misunderstood Jesus, Jesus understood them perfectly and still went on loving them. While the disciples, in just a few moments, were going to flee from Jesus and each go to his own way, Jesus, in just a few moments, was going to let himself be bound and led to the cross where he Would die for them. The quote in this passage, for I tell you this scripture must be fulfilled in me. You might recognize it from Isaiah 53, that awesome prophecy of Isaiah's about the Messiah's suffering and ultimate triumph. And one of the saddest and most beautiful parts of that chapter, that prophecy about the Messiah, is how he suffers and dies and saves alone. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. So on one hand, you have all humanity, lost and dead in sin, Billions of people bowed down underneath the fall. And on the other hand, you have one man, the man Jesus Christ, who goes and suffers and dies alone so that transgressors like them and like us wouldn't have to be numbered as transgressors anymore, but numbered in his kingdom instead. And there's a word here for anyone in this room who hasn't yet come to Jesus, and is maybe thinking that salvation is something that you do with Jesus. As in, you become good enough, holy enough, Christian enough, and then he'll deliver you. But what this passage is saying, and what the rest of the Bible says, is that salvation is not something you do with Jesus, but something he does for you. And what you do, what we do, is turn and trust him, and love him. (laughs) and receive him as the only one qualified to deliver us from all the kinds of dangers that surround us all the time. He was numbered with the transgressors. We don't have to be in him. Let's step back now, those two scenes done, and think for a moment about two broader applications as we near the close. What would we be like, church, if the truth in this passage got deeper into our bones? We would be more humble, and we would be more hopeful. Just want to talk briefly about both of those. First, we would be more humble. In the first part, first half of our passage, we talked about how Peter slowly lost sight of his own weakness apart from Jesus. He grew self-confident. Peter didn't know Peter anymore. And I wonder this morning if you know yourself. Do you know that if you are standing in some area of life right now, that it is only because Jesus holds you up? Do you know that if you are walking in obedience in some area of life, that it is only because Jesus gives you strength? And do you know that if he left you for a day, that your faith would fail? That if he stopped praying for you and protecting you, you would be gone? Probably most of us can answer the right way in this moment, but here's one test. The test is asking how you respond on an inner instinctive level when you hear about somebody else near or far who has fallen into sin in an area where you have not or are not right now. How do you respond inside instinctively, not what you say, but what you feel, when you hear about somebody who has fallen where you have not? If God has given you, for example, self-control sexually and you hear about somebody sinning sexually, what is your response inside? If you have a gentle demeanor by God's grace and you hear about somebody having an outburst of anger, how do you instinctively respond? If God has given you strong faith in Jesus and you hear about somebody else having serious doubts about Jesus, How do you respond instinctively? If, in that moment, we respond instinctively with a prideful feeling that we haven't fallen there or contempt or at all the inner sense that that could never be me, then we don't know ourselves. If Peter had heard of one of the other 12 denying Jesus, surely he would have said, that will never be me. In fact, in the other Gospels, he does say that. They all may deny you, I won't deny you. There he went. Our greatest danger, what all this means, is that our greatest danger is not our own weakness. Our greatest danger is not our vulnerability. Our greatest danger is not even the devil. Our greatest danger is the feeling that we can defeat those dangers without Jesus. Self-confidence is our greatest danger. Jesus can handle weakness. Jesus can handle the devil. Jesus can handle vulnerability. (laughs) But once we start walking in a pattern of self-confidence, what we're doing is leaving Jesus, functionally, even if not in our heads. And when we leave Jesus, we open ourselves up to all manner of sin. (laughs) What would it look like to be a humble people like that? It might look like, it would look like confessing our sins to one another really freely because we would rather have the safety that comes from walking with other people in the light than trying to stand up ourselves in the dark. It would look like praying like Jesus tells us every day, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Because we know that if he doesn't keep us from overpowering temptation, then no area of life where we are standing right now will that keep happening. It would look like a kind of caution about the line that crosses over into sin instead of feeling comfortable and confident on the edge. Because we know how easy it is that we deceive ourselves into thinking we're stronger than we are. So this passage should make us more humble. If, if Peter fell, we can fall. And it should make us more hopeful. If on our own, even the smallest, weakest danger can lay us low, with Jesus, not even the biggest can. You might have failed in this moment. There might be people in here who are in the midst of a failure like, Peter's, like Peter was about to experience. But if you are hoping in Jesus, Jesus is praying for you. There might be people in here who are walking through the darkest night that they've walked through yet as a believer. But Jesus is praying for you. There might be people in here who struggle, like I imagine Peter did after he failed, even to see your faith. But Jesus prays for you. And if none of those things are true right now, then one day they likely will be. And in that day, Jesus will pray for you. And because he prays for you, there is hope. And morning is coming. And your faith will rise. (laughs) Keep hoping in him. And not only does he have the power to deliver you as he prays for you, but like we saw with Peter, he has the power to use you in really powerful ways for the good of other people. I wonder if there's somebody in here today who feels like God can't use you for good because of some way that you failed in the past or yesterday. You remember what Jesus told Peter? When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The one who was too weak to stand will now strengthen others. And in God's grace, he has a way of using even our darkest failures to make us humbler and wiser, and even better suited to serve others than we were before. (laughs) And the church, the people around you, need the strength that you have to give from what you have learned of Jesus in those moments. So the prayers of Jesus will not keep us from all darkness and danger, just like they didn't keep Peter. But they will deliver us from all darkness and danger. They will, as we keep hoping in him. Let's pray. Jesus, the greatest prayers we have are not our own. They are yours. And we thank you that you are at the right hand of God right now, a risen Savior with finished work, now applying it, now upholding us by your own intercession. We thank you that our faith doesn't rest on our own power, but on you. And I pray now that as we sing and as we respond to you, that all the weak would find strength in this room and would know that it is the strength of the prayers of Jesus Your prayers, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen.